Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Michelle Alexander, welcome to our Legally Speaking series. Oh, thank you. Your book is called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Um, this is, I think, a disturbing book. Uh, it is a provocative book, and it is certainly a book that has generated a lot of buzz. And, and your thesis, as I understand it, is that for the last 30 years or so, we have, unlike any other country in the world, uh, engaged in, uh, in an orgy of incarceration that has not in any coherent or consistent way served the cause of justice. That uh, rather than a war on drugs, which supposedly this was all about, or most of it was about, this has on the ground been a war against uh, poor African-American communities. Yes, yes. You know, I argue that Today, uh, even as we elect Barack Obama as our nation's first black president, and even as we claim to have entered into the era of colorblindness, mm -hmm. we as a nation have managed to rebirth a caste-like system in America. Through the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement, we have targeted, arrested, and imprisoned millions of poor people of color, primarily black men, um, for predominantly nonviolent and drug-related crimes, the very sorts of crimes that occur with roughly equal frequency in middle-class white communities and mm -hmm. on college campuses and universities. And once they're swept into the system, they're branded um, and trapped in a permanent second-class status, not unlike the one that we supposedly left behind. Once you're branded a criminal or a felon, all the old forms of discrimination, uh, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, legal discrimination and employment, housing, access to education, public benefits, are suddenly legal. Um, you know, as a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama or Mississippi at the height of Jim Crow. If there's one drug, it seems to me, that illustrates how skewed the enforcement has been, it's marijuana. Uh, there was one study conducted by the Drug Policy Alliance in California, and it showed that in, in that state's 25 largest cities, uh, arrest rates for blacks for possessing marijuana were four to, time, four to 12 times higher than it is for whites. Yes. Yet, you know, last November, we had an election in California, and one of the ballot measures was to, in essence, uh, legalize the recreational use of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And only 47% of black voters voted for it. Right. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated. Um, you know, African Americans have no doubt been the primary target 
of the drug war and have suffered the most as a result of the war on drugs. But many people in the black community are also very concerned about the harms associated with illegal drugs and they see the harms associated with illegal drug activity and you know legalizing drugs um, makes people nervous it makes people worry that there's a message being sent to their youngsters who are already struggling just to make it um, that it's okay to use drugs were you surprised by the results of that election no, actually, I wasn't. I mean, I thought that it was, it was you know, I was hopeful that um, marijuana would be legalized in California, very hopeful. But um, it's a big step for people to take. I mean, mind you, we've had decades now of the demonization of drug use and drug sales. Um, you know, marijuana. Yeah, but, you know, marijuana has a, it, yeah, I mean, marijuana. I mean, we have gotten beyond reefer madness, haven't we, a little bit? Yeah, yeah, but I think we still have a, a longer way to go than, than many people realize. And I think there was also a lot of confusion in California about exactly what the ballot initiative would mean. Would it mean that marijuana would be sold in grocery stores? Would it mean that it would just be available anywhere, anytime? Um, people were uncertain about what the practical consequences would be. Um, um, and so, you know, I think in the future, as we strive to decriminalize um, marijuana and potentially other drugs, it's going to be very important to help people to understand that it is possible to put into place regulatory regimes <laughs> that, um, you know, treat drugs as a public health problem rather than a crime, um, but actually address, you know, the concerns of the legitimate concerns about people of people about making drugs um, more readily available. Um, and how do, you, how do you do that? How, how, how do you begin to treat it as a, uh, less as, as a crime and more as a, a social problem without well, making it more available? The, the organization Law Enforcement Against Prohibition um, has done a tremendous amount of excellent work showing how drugs are actually more illegal drugs. The drugs that we think of as being extra bad are actually more readily available um, to young people um, as long as they're criminalized because the control of the drug market rests entirely with the criminals themselves. <laughs> um, nobody's checking ID, nobody's trying to ensure the quality of the product or make sure that it's not laced with anything or, you know, that you're, by having a black market for these drugs um, it, that's totally unregulated, <laughs> um, you know, all of the control and powers put in the hands of criminals. Um, and, you know, other countries have done a much better job of, you know, embracing a public health model and ensuring that um, there are systems in place that, you know, make sure that drugs aren't readily available and that young people um, who are underage don't have easy access. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, don't have the criminal stigma attached to those who choose um, to use drugs and who may need help and feel unable even to get the help they need because funding isn't available for drug treatment. But even for those folks who have a difficult time at this stage, you know, seriously entertaining the idea that we might end drug prohibition in the United States, we can at least end the drug war 
You know, we didn't always do things this way in the United States. You know, prior to you know Reagan's declaration of war in 1982, um, a declaration of war he made at the time at a time when drug crime was actually on the decline, not on the rise. You know, most people assume that Ronald Reagan declared the war on drugs in response to the emergence of crack cocaine and related violence, but that's not true. He declared the war on drugs in response to racial politics and did so at a time when drug crime was actually on the decline. It was a couple years before crack hit the streets. And before we declared drug war, um, drugs were illegal, but we didn't pump billions of dollars into local and state law enforcement agencies for the purpose of having these drug task forces that would sweep poor communities of color, stopping and frisking and searching folks on the street while they're walking to the bus stop or returning home from the subway and, you know, authorizing these programs like Operation Pipeline, which would stop people's cars and the hope that they could you know, go on a fishing expedition for drugs, this all-out war that has been waged on illegal drugs without any real benefit in terms of reducing drug addiction can be ended even without ending drug prohibition. You mentioned Ronald Reagan, but isn't it true that people like Bill Clinton uh, he oversaw a massive increase in prison construction. I believe oh, he pumped absolutely. in $9.9 billion. Uh, Mario Cuomo, when he was governor of New York, presided over a dramatic increase in uh, prison construction. Uh, I had read that uh, when Ann Richards was governor of Texas, the inc- uh, rate of incarceration increased more quickly under her than it did under George W. Bush. This yes. isn't a conservative liberal thing, is it? Well, it, it certainly hasn't become one. I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, to understand how we got to this place, how we got to be the world's leader in imprisonment and how we managed to construct a penal system unparalleled in world history. We have to kind of go back, actually, to the origins of this get-tough movement. And if you trace those origins back, you could trace them all the way to the civil rights movement, when segregationists and former segregationists were looking for formally colorblind language that they could use to appeal to poor working-class white folks in the South who were angry about, anxious about, fearful of, threatened by many of the gains of African Americans in the civil rights movement. Um, Segregationists and former segregationists stopped saying segregation forever and started saying law and order. Uh, Pollsters and political strategists found that, you know, thinly veiled promises to get tough on a group of people not so subtly defined by race could be enormously successful in persuading those poor and working class whites in the South to defect from the Democratic New Deal coalition and join the Republican Party in droves. It was part of what has become known as uh, the Southern strategy, the grand Republican Party strategy of trying to flip the South from blue to red. And in the words of H.R. Haldeman, President Richard Nixon's former chief of staff, he described the strategy as, quote, the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. And while that sounds, you know, Machiavellian, um, the reality is they were responding to a, a political reality which is that poor working class whites in the South really had their world rocked by the civil rights movement. You know, wealthy whites could send their kids to 
private schools and give their kids all the advantages that wealth has to offer, but poor and working class whites who were struggling for survival were faced with a social demotion. You know, it was their kids who might be subject to busing orders. Um, it was their kids who they felt were being passed over through these affirmative action programs as African-American kids were like leapfrogging over them, they thought, on their way to Harvard and Yale. And this created an enormous amount of anxiety and resentment and also an enormous political opportunity. So when President Reagan declared the war on drugs, he was attempting to make good on campaign promises to get tough. Um, on a group of people um, that had been defined by race. And the success of that, though, the success of that effort is what persuaded Democrats to begin competing with Republicans to prove that they could be even tougher than their Republican counterparts. But it seems to me there's another piece to this. I mean, certainly there's no shortage of politicians who make names for themselves by saying they're going to get tough on crime. And the argument, of course, is that criminals have too many rights and that liberal judges are making the United States a more dangerous place because they're giving them those rights or recognizing those rights. But it seems to me, too, that the fear that these politicians were tapping into was not completely divorced from reality. After all, between 1960 and 1990, the violent crime rate in this country uh, quadrupled. The murder rate doubled. There was a dip in the early 80s, but there was you know, a fear there, it seems to me, that, you know, that, I mean, it, it seems that this country for most of those years was a more dangerous place, wasn't it? Well, there's no doubt that, you know, violent crime rates did rise in the 60s and the 70s. And in fact, there were some segregationists and former segregationists who were arguing that, you know, the rise of violence, particularly in northern cities, was evidence that, you know, segregation was needed in order to control the African-American community. And so it wasn't as though, you know, problems of crime weren't real in, in some communities. They were. And as you point out, crime rates were fluctuating. It wasn't as that they were, you know, on a constant upward trajectory. Well, but a, a there was dip in the early 80s. And, then, was this, and then it went up again. Oh. Yeah. Um, so crime, crime, problems of crime were real. And what but, they, yeah. but the, the motivation for using crime and get tough appeals was their political effectiveness in mobilizing a group of voters who you know, were able to express racial resentment in a formally race-neutral way by you know, being tough on welfare, which went hand-in-hand hand with the tough-on-crime movement. And you know, many African-American politicians called for get-tough measures, and there was you know, a certain amount of panic that struck African-American communities, particularly when crack hit the streets. But the law and order and get-tough rhetoric um, preceded the crack epidemic um, and helped to, in many ways, um, you know, legitimate um, the overwhelmingly punitive response. Well, the rhetoric, followed. as you point out in your book, goes back at least to Barry Goldwater in 64. Yeah. Uh, it was certainly embraced by Richard Nixon. And what makes this, this seems to be more, more complicated is that the cities didn't blow up under Ronald Reagan uh, or George W. Bush, they blew up under Lyndon Johnson at this very same time he was, you know, trying to push through his Great Society program. So it seems to me the timing, if not that, nothing else, 
made it easier for conservatives to discredit the liberal approach to dealing with these complex problems. Oh, well, I mean, indeed. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, there was, you know, there were uprisings, riots, sweeping many cities um, in the wake of, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X was creating a lot of anxiety. And and the response was, we've got to get tough. The response was, lock them up. We've got to crack down and get tough. yeah, but the, the fear was not divorced from reality. It, it was well. It, it depends on which reality you're talking about, mm-hmm. because, for example, you know, like I said, to declare a war on drugs at a time when drug crime was actually on the decline and when public concern about drugs was, was actually the fear was quite there. low, right? But it wasn't about drugs. Wasn't about drugs, the but there was, was there, the wasn't fear it? of crime may have been there. Yeah. But the war on drugs was declared as a way of providing a, a vehicle for channeling that anxiety. And, and the perception was that drugs outrage. was generating much of this violence. Well, at that time, there wasn't much concern about drugs. At the time, President Reagan declared the war on drugs. When crack hit the street a couple years later, then the association between drugs and violence overtook the media, um, for sure. Your book, to a large extent, uh, focuses on nonviolent crimes and how blacks are punished much more severely than whites. But to what extent... Does your critique extend to much more serious crimes, crimes like murder, uh, assault, armed robbery? Uh, To what extent does this critique extend to those crimes? Well, you know, I focused my book um, to a large extent on the war on drugs and the arrest and prosecution of African-Americans for nonviolent drug-related offenses because most people assume that mass incarceration is driven by violent crime. And it's not true. (laughs) So to a large extent, the book is a rebuttal to the dominant conception of who is in prison and for, you know, what reasons. Um, You know, mass incarceration hasn't been driven by violent crime rates. It's just not true. Um, You know, between 1985 and 2000, the period of the most dramatic expansion of our prison system, um, two-thirds of the increase in the federal system were for drug convictions alone, more than half of the increase in the state's system was for drug convictions alone. And by the year 2000, there were more people cycling in and out of prison just for probation and parole violations than had been incarcerated in 1980 for all reasons. So the drug war created in the space of less than two decades um, this extraordinary Population, millions of people cycling in and out of prison for these relatively minor drug offenses. Um, and even as recently as 2005, four out of five all drug arrests were for simple possession, only one out of five were for sales. You know, in the 1990s, 
the period of the greatest escalation of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession. <laughs> you know, so I, I thought it was important for the public to understand that this explosion in imprisonment has not been driven by an explosion in violent crime over the last few decades. Um, but the critique of the book, um, which you know, at its core is you know, rooted in concern about the overwhelming punitiveness that we have shown poor people of color certainly applies as much to those who find themselves sitting in prison um, for life um, without the possibility of parole because of uh, a violent offense as much as it does to a nonviolent one. Um, you know, in the United States, because we embrace the death penalty, <laughs> anything less than death um, makes it seem as though someone's getting it off, getting off light. So when someone says, oh, you get only 30 years <laughs> for an aggravated assault, um, a sentence that's larger, you know, longer than murderers receive in most other Western democracies, we think somehow that's being soft. And I think our overwhelming punitiveness is rooted in our racial anxieties and the stereotypes we have about who the real criminals are. After 1990, violent crime rates in this country plummeted dramatically. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that happened? Oh, well, I mean, there's a raging debate in the <laughs> academic community about why because exactly are, it as happened. As you know, I'm sure yes. there are some people who would credit our mass incarceration uh, policies uh, as unfair as they may be, as, as racist as they may be. Yeah. There are those who would say that simply throwing people behind bars has accounted for some of this precipitous decline we've seen. Well, most of the estimates, you know, suggest that mass incarceration has reduced our crime rate somewhere between about 5 and 25%. Yeah. Um, On one end, you've got uh, people like Stephen Levitt, co-author of the book Freakonomics. Right. He suggests that it accounts for one-third of the decline. Yeah, well, he's definitely on He's on the one, one end. And then you have Bruce Western at Harvard right. at the other end. It says, it's says like 5%. Percent. Yeah, right. exactly. Even if it were true that as much as 30% yeah. of our crime reduction was due to mass incarceration, even if that were true, that would mean that you know 75% yeah. of the uh, imprisonment that we're doing may not really be uh, leading to any re results in reduction of crime rate. And we have to ask ourselves, how many millions of people are we willing to lock up right in order to obtain a marginal decrease in crime rates. And are we willing also to do it with respect to a particular you know, racially defined population? Are we willing to throw away, literally dispose of, millions of poor people of color um, so that other people <laughs> might feel a little more secure in their daily lives, especially when sociologists like uh, William Julius Wilson have you know, shown in his book, um, When Work Disappears, that joblessness is the uh, most important factor in violent crime and violent crime rates. You know, and he cites research in his book showing that if you control for joblessness, in other words, if you can compare white jobless men with black jobless men, the racial disparities in violent crime virtually disappear. 
that you know in inner city communities today jobs cannot be found and this is the result of a major transformation in our national economy you know during the same period of time that a backlash against the civil rights movement was brewing and the war on drugs was kicking off our nation went through a period of deindustrialization and globalization, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs literally vanished from inner cities in Chicago, Detroit, around the country. And instead of responding to this economic crisis, this economic depression in inner city communities with a wave of compassion, economic stimulus programs, bailout packages, job training um, to help, you know, young people of color in particular make the rough transition to a new service-based economy. Instead of doing any of that, we ended welfare as we knew it, we declared the war on drugs, you know, no longer needed to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories. Um, black men were rounded up in droves and disposed of. It seems to me in this conversation, there are two facts on the ground that are difficult to ignore. One fact is that, uh, even though there's been a precipitous decline in violent crime in this country, uh, the, 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 the violent crime that does occur today, a large percentage, percentage of it is committed by young black, man, mm -hmm. black men. That's the first fact on the ground. Uh, and the second fact on the ground is that a large percentage of that violent crime is com committed against black people. Mm -hmm. uh, so in fact, the statistic I saw, young black men are 20 times more likely to die from violence than a person in the general population. Um, how do you respond to, say, a black parent who has lost a son to street violence mm -hmm. and who would say to you, you know, uh, the real injustice here is not that there, aren't, uh, that there are too many cops in my neighborhood, but that there are too few. And, and what do you say to that parent who would argue that the real racial injustice here is, is not that we're too tough on violent black men, but rather that the crimes that happen to be committed against blacks uh, are not treated with nearly the same sense of urgency as those crimes that are committed against whites? Well, what do you say to that parent? I just I say you're absolutely right. Basic security is a human right, is a fundamental human right as important as the right to be treated fairly in um, the justice system, that no one, no child, no one should uh, be forced to live in a community in which they feel unsafe or unthreatened, where they you know, risk their lives just by walking to school. Um, it's, it's an absolute you know, tragedy that that exists in the United States today. Um, but we, we don't solve that problem by waging a drug war. Your, your point is well taken, but again, going back to that parent who, say, has lost a son, mm -hmm. you know, the, when they catch someone, when they, when they find the person who's uh, committed a violent crime, should the punishment be as severe as the punishment is now? Should it be less severe? I mean, how, in terms of where we are with violent crime, uh, are we over-punishing people? Absolutely. You know, there's an there's a excellent body of research that has been done showing that the longer the punishment is doesn't deter people from engaging in violent crime. People don't stop and think, well, I'm going to, you know, I would bash that guy over the head. Yeah. Uh, 
if I was going to get five years, but because I'm going to get 25, I think I won't do it. No, actually, you know, to the extent penalties, criminal penalties deter criminal activity at all, it's the certainty of punishment, not the amount of punishment one receives. Um, and so, you know, by ensuring that people who commit violent crimes are actually, you know, apprehended and punished to some degree, um, by ensuring that, you know, there is a corrective mechanism um, for those who commit, you know, violent offenses, um, we, we are more likely to deter crime than adding on years and years. Also, I am a firm believer in restorative justice that the goal shouldn't just be to heap on shame and you know, punishment on an individual, but to actually try to ensure that that person goes back into the community as an asset rather than someone who's likely to harm again. Do we know how to do that? I think there's wonderful restorative justice programs around the country that have, there's, yes, there's wonderful models. Um, I mean, the, the, the conservatives say we don't know how to do that. We know how to lock no, people up, but think, we don't know how to no, rehabilitate. I, I think that that's not true. There's wonderful restorative justice models that have actually um, become supported by many victims' rights groups. You know, many people say, well, if you care about the victims, then you're going to want to punish these folks, lock them up and throw away the yeah. key. If you really care about the victims, you're going to want to harm, to the greatest extent, the offender. But in reality, many victims themselves feel that they're not treated well in the process, in the criminal justice process. Many feel that they don't ever really get heard or their harm considered in a meaningful way. Um, you know, the prosecutors take over, and it's up to the, you know, the court system to decide what happens and how. And, you know, they're suffering kind of falls by the wayside as all the attention is then placed on the offender and how much we're going to hurt them as a result of the harm they have done. But restorative justice comes from the approach that the victim matters as much um, as the offender and that they should have an opportunity to confront the offender if they choose, have an opportunity to decide what kind of restoration might help to make them whole or to really remedy the harm that they have experienced. Um, and an emphasis is placed on ensuring that that kind of crime never happens again, which should be, I think, from a societal perspective, our utmost concern. And the last thing I'll say about violent crime, though, and it's a fairly obvious point, but I feel you know, it, it, it bears emphasis, which is that to the extent that the drug trade you know, creates violence, it's due entirely to drug prohibition. You know, if drugs were legal in the United States, there would be no drug-related violence plaguing poor communities of color, just as alcohol prohibition led to a tremendous amount of gang violence and mafia violence. Um, that ended <laughs> once alcohol um, became legal. And so for folks who are particularly concerned about violence in poor communities of color, rethinking um, drug prohibition would be an important step to drastic. So you think, you think all drugs should be legal, not oh, just no, marijuana? No, no, I didn't, I didn't say that. Okay. I, I, my own views on this have been evolving over time. Um, I think for sure marijuana. Right. Um, That's easy. How about it's, heroin? It's an easy one. I, I think we should have an open mind. I think we should begin studying 
what other countries are doing. Um, you know, I, I think we have made that a taboo in the United States. But given that we've spent a trillion dollars now on a failed drug war and haven't managed to reduce drug addiction or drug abuse one iota, I think it's time for us to at least ask the question, are there more effective ways of doing this, of responding to the harms associated with drugs um, than flat-out prohibition? And like I said, in Portugal and you know, a number of other countries now have shown that you can decriminalize drugs and reduce rates of drug abuse and drug addiction and ensure that young people aren't experimenting um, as, as frequently with drugs. And if that's the case, then why are we? Then why continue doing what we're doing when it leads to so much violence and despair and uh, the you know the waste of, of billions of dollars? All right. To change subjects just a little bit, uh, you have some rather negative things to say in your book about affirmative action. In fact, you raise the question whether affirmative action as it has been defended in the last 30 years, has, quote, functioned more like a racial bribe than a tool for racial justice. Explain that. Yeah, well, you know, in the book I acknowledge that many of the criticisms of affirmative action that have been made are unfounded, that, you know, um, white people as a group have not been much harmed <laughs> by affirmative action um, and that you know there have been real benefits associated with affirmative action. Without affirmative action programs many institutions like fire departments and police departments might not have ever been integrated or at least not to the degree that has been achieved um, to date. So uh, I don't, it's not that I don't acknowledge any benefits of affirmative action. I, I certainly do. Um, but I do have a concern about affirmative action. And it's that, you know, at the time of um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s death, he was committed to building a poor people's movement. He was committed to building a movement on behalf of poor people of all colors for basic human rights, the right to work, the right to housing, the right to quality education for all. Uh, he was firmly committed to the hard work of movement building across racial and ethnic lines for social and economic justice, recognizing that civil rights alone um, was not going to result uh, in justice, true justice for all. Uh, but after his death, um, civil rights leaders largely abandoned his commitment to movement building for economic justice and began pursuing um, civil rights remedies largely through our courts and embracing um, with great zeal affirmative action programs which I believe you know um, amount to sort of a trickle-down theory of justice the idea is if you sprinkle enough <laughs> folks of color and elite institutions and places of power that somehow justice will trickle down to those at the bottom and uh, that was an approach that you know, Dr. King had real questions about. He never expressed opposition to affirmative action itself. In fact, you know, many things that he said suggested that he would support affirmative action, at least in some circumstances. But Dr. King was firmly committed to a bottom-up, grassroots movement for social economic justice. Mm -hmm. And my fear is that uh, we have traded away <laughs> 
that commitment to economic justice and human rights for all in exchange for um, the sprinkling of opportunity for a few um, at the top. And it's not a fair trade, and it's not a just one. And I also worry that affirmative action has helped to mask the severity of racial inequality in the United States. It's easy for people to say, how could there possibly be anything like a racial caste system in the United States when you have Barack Obama as president of the United States who entered into Harvard through an affirmative action program and achieved great you know, uh, power and, and fame. And when you see... You know, people I thought in, Oprah Winfrey was the most powerful person in America. Well, I don't, all right, Oprah Winfrey may well be, but you know, you see these highly visible, yeah. you know, African Americans doing very well, and uh, I think it creates the impression <laughs> that far more progress has actually been made, and it also helps us to rationalize. Um, the suffering of those at the bottom. We can say to ourselves, well, if they just worked harder, if they just made better choices, they too um, you know, might be Barack Obama. But of course, the irony is Barack Obama himself has admitted to violating drug laws you know, numerous times, use cocaine, use marijuana. And if he had been raised in the hood, if he had not been insulated um, by being raised by white grandparents in Hawaii and attending predominantly white colleges and universities, if he had been just an ordinary kid in the hood, he would have been stopped, he would have been searched, he would have been caught, and the odds are very high. History would have been rewritten. Yeah, he might not even have the right to vote today, much less be president of the United States. Let me read to you a passage from your book which, which really struck me. Uh, you say, quote, It may not be easy for the civil rights community to have a candid conversation about any of this. We're talking about affirmative action here. Civil rights organizations are populated with beneficiaries of affirmative action, like myself and their friends and allies. Ending affirmative action arouses fear of annihilation. The reality that so many of us would disappear overnight from college and universities nationwide if affirmative action were banned and that our children and grandchildren might not follow in our footsteps creates a kind of panic that is difficult to describe. It may be analogous in some respects to the panic once experienced by poor and working class whites faced with desegregation, the fear of a sudden demotion in the nation's racial hierarchy. Those are really strong words, and I'm just wondering, since the book came out, have you heard from, from any of those folks in those civil rights organizations? Have they expressed their displeasure to, toward you, to, no. to you? No. Have they? And I hope they read the book. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> no, actually, what's interesting is that... Um, you know, I when I released the, when the book was released, I was you know somewhat concerned about the reaction I might receive from some civil rights groups or organizations. Um, not only because about my comments about affirmative action, but also because in the introduction in the last chapter, I have some real criticisms of the civil rights community for failing. Um, you know over the last 30 years to really speak up uh, loudly against the war on drugs and the mass incarceration of African Americans. And so I, you know, I, I was, was hopeful that the civil rights community would be open to the message, um, but also somewhat 
concerned about the reaction. And, um, you know, I have to say I've been very pleasantly surprised. Um, Civil rights organizations have responded, um, you know, quite enthusiastically to the book. Um, You know, the... And have they said to you, you know, you're right on affirmative action? I have to say I haven't had very many conversations with folks about the affirmative action piece. Um, And it's interesting, even in the media interviews that I've done, um, very rarely am I asked about it. So you're one of the few. Gosh, it just leapt out at me. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't help but notice in this passage that I read that you parenthetically referred to yourself. Oh. And and I'm wondering, tell, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Well, I was born in Chicago. Um, my mother is white. My father is African-American. He died quite a while ago. And uh, my parents were interracially married at a time. That was a big no-no in the city of Chicago. <laughs> and my mother was uh, basically disowned by her family, excommunicated from her church, Um, And not long after they were married uh, at a wedding where virtually nobody attended (laughs) from either side of the family, they fled the city. And we lived in a very small community out in the cornfields in Illinois of uh, a small town populated by other people who had (laughs) um, fled the racial conflict in um, Chicago and were hoping to create a better world, a better community. And we lived there for a while before moving to California. But, you know, growing up, I was acutely aware of um, racial inequality. I got to see how differently my mother was treated than how my father was treated. If we were looking for an apartment, it was my mother who would go looking (laughs) and not tell them about the rest of her black family. Um, And, uh, you know, I also got to see my father experiencing severe employment discrimination while at IBM. And, um, and yet I was aware of my privilege. Um, and, you know, I went to Vanderbilt University and volunteered at uh, a school um, in Nashville that was under desegregation order. And uh, I saw that, uh, you know, I was actually quite privileged as comparison to many folks who were stuck in urban ghetto schools um, in which, you know, attending a school like Vanderbilt um, or having many of the opportunities that I had, you know, taken for granted was, you know, a little more than a, a fantasy. I know from uh, reading your resume on the Internet, uh, you went to Stanford Law School. Mm-hmm. You clerked for United States Supreme Court Justice. Uh, I think it's fair to say you have a Tiffany resume. And it, it just made me wonder, you know, a lot of folks with Tiffany resumes, they join big law firms, they work on fascinating things like mergers and acquisitions or intellectual property, they make a bucket of money, and then they maybe do a little pro bono work on the side. Were you ever tempted to trade on that Tiffany resume? For oh, that? I was tempted, for sure, yeah. When I... Um Realized that I could make in one month what my father had earned in a year, you know, after, you know, clerking on the Supreme Court and graduating from a nice law school. I was very tempted. And I went to a large law firm, Hogan and Hartson, and I lasted 11 months there <laughs> before I realized that, you know, this just wasn't for me. That the reason I went to law school was because I was passionate about social justice and civil rights, and I wanted to, 
you know, use my time and whatever skills or talents I might have in a way that might actually kind of further um, the cause, um, you know, of, of the, the folks that I had so admired, um, you know, growing up. You clerked for Justice Harry Blackman. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting guy. He went through this very interesting uh, evolution over the time that he was a United States Supreme Court justice, and in fact throughout his entire career, right, he was a Nixon appointee. When he started out, he was uh, viewed as a protege of Warren Burgers. Uh, over time, he voted more and more frequently with the liberals, with Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan. And uh, it seems to me that evolution is most dramatically illustrated by uh, how he viewed the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in her biography of uh, Justice Blackman, uh, Linda Greenhouse uh, notes that he expressed opposition to the death penalty as far back as uh, 1967, but he always wrestled with the question whether as a judge he had the power to strike it down. And, and, and I think he wrestled with it to almost the end of his career at the Supreme Court Justice. And it was punctuated, I guess, two months before his retirement by a dissent uh, he filed in a case called Callens uh, versus Collins. And that dissent said in part, quote, from this day forward, I shall no longer tinker with the machinery of death. Now, I imagine those words are very familiar to you. Yeah. And, uh, and why are they so familiar? Yes, well, I, <laughs> I helped to draft that opinion. You wrote that, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and that was really, you know, the, by far the highlight of my experience clerking for him was having the opportunity to work with him and writing that in writing that opinion in which he, um, you know, acknowledged that it was impossible to administer the death penalty in a manner that comported with uh, the demands of uh, the Eighth Amendment. Um, And, uh, you know, I I was so proud of him for having the courage um, to take that stand um, before he left the bench. What took him over the hump? Well, you know... When you're a clerk for a justice, you know, you, you kind of owe them a certain level of confidentiality. Oh, come on, you're not. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to characterize the conversations that we had um, during his, his, his final term, but I can say that... No one will watch this program, I guarantee it. <laughs> no, but I, you know, I can say that I think that he was, as you, as you acknowledge, you know, he was moving towards that position. He was, he was questioning and struggling. Um, with the death penalty for throughout his 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 time on the bench, and um, you know by the time he reached the end of the road, I think he felt compelled to admit that this experiment with the death penalty had failed, and that there was no way to guarantee fairness and consistency in the administration of death while at the same time um, you know allowing real opportunity for mercy and compassion and attention to you know, the circumstances of each individual life and each person's case. And, uh, you know, that mistakes are going to be made. (laughs) And when it comes to who should live and who should die, we uh, can't allow uh, for racial bias and arbitrariness, caprice and mistake um, to end someone's life. You mentioned Barack Obama in in passing. 
Is it fair to say that he's really annoyed you from time to time, uh, especially when he talks about black men live, not living up to their responsibility? Uh, I believe as a candidate back in 2008, he said that too many young black men act more like children than adults. Does that sort of rhetoric really piss you off? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't like that speech. I didn't like that speech. You know, I have to say, I was a fanatic Obama supporter when he was running for office. You know, I was a fanatic Obama supporter, and, you know, in many ways, I feel like I drank the Kool-Aid, you know. Um, and like so many, I think African Americans in particular, really projected my deepest hopes <laughs> and dreams on him and uh, imagined that um, he would be um, more than he is or perhaps than he could be um, in, in his role as, as president. And so, yeah, I've been disappointed and somewhat disillusioned by some of the things that he has said and done. And the excerpt that you just kind of quoted from my book refers to a speech he gave on Father's Day while on the campaign trail. Um, he's giving a speech on Father's Day in a black church while, you know, the media, of course, is, is, is there in full force and, you know, uses Father's Day as an opportunity to chastise black men for acting like boys instead of men and being AWOL while never acknowledging, of course, that right there in Chicago where he was speaking, there was a drug war raging and that, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of black men have been taken from their families and their children, not voluntarily, um, but because they were rounded up in a drug war for committing these nonviolent, relatively minor drug offenses that go ignored on the other side of town. And, uh, you know, these men cycling in and out of prison love their children and do their best. And in fact, as I note in the book, research suggests that black men are more likely, actually more likely, to maintain contact with their children following separation due to divorce or imprisonment um, or anything else than men of any other racial or ethnic group. So to bash black fathers um, as acting like boys rather than men when the research suggests otherwise and when a drug war has made it impossible for so many to be fathers as they would hope and, and desire, I thought was a cheap political shot that uh, was, really, was really designed, I think, to placate mainstream white Americans and send the impression that he was, um, you know, a racial moderate or conservative on some matters in the wake of the Reverend Wright scandal where he felt it was necessary, I think, to send certain types of signals to the mainstream. Certainly, yeah, it could be said that he was pandering to a white audience when he made that speech. But that said, is there no element of truth to what he was saying at all? Well, like I said, the research suggests that black men actually do a better job of maintaining relationships with their children than men of any other racial or ethnic group after a separation. So to say that black men are worse fathers or you know, acting like boys rather than men, and those kinds of generalities is just not supported. Um, by the evidence. Um, are some black men absent when they should be present? Absolutely. Are some black men making bad choices? But so are plenty of white men and Latino men and 
Asian men as well. I mean, you know, um, the challenges facing black families today are extraordinary, particularly poor black families, where often, you know, as a result of federal policy, federal policy, federal law, when you're returning home from prison, it has been federal policy that you're barred from public housing for a minimum of five years. So now here you have you know, your spouse or your partner and your children living in public housing. They're poor. You can't go home. You're barred. If you go home, the family risks eviction. So the idea that you know, men just don't care, <laughs> acting like boys instead of men, is ignoring um, the extraordinary obstacles that face black families today in the midst of the war on drugs and you know, uh, these tactics of mass incarceration um, to hold families together and, and to make it. And so, um, yes, plenty of black men could be doing better, but so could yeah. men of all other races. You know, there was a huge controversy that you know, really uh, flamed up back in 19, I guess it was 65, uh, when Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, uh, he, he uh, was uh, Assistant Secretary of Labor at the time under Lyndon Johnson, and he wrote this report called The Negro Family, the, the, the Case for National Action. And the reason why it generated so much controversy was that because uh, he didn't just talk about the structural reasons why black, uh, blacks were doing as poorly as they were doing in the air city, he also talked uh, about uh, a dysfunctional culture. Um, and he said, uh, you know, at the center of the tangle of pathology is the weakness of the black family structure. And he was accused back then of blaming the victim. I mean, it was an extraordinary controversy. Uh, when he wrote that report, 24% of African-American children were born as single mothers. Now it's up to 70%. Um, so I understand that joblessness and incarceration, all the rest of it, have a lot to do with that, but was he wrong, or would we be wrong to suggest that there's a, a dysfunctional cultural component there that makes a bad situation worse? I think that any time people struggle to adapt <laughs> to um, really tragic circumstances like the one that has been wrought by the war on drugs and mass incarceration, there's going to be you know, positive adaptations and negative ones. Um, you know, I, I strongly resist the idea that, you know, the disintegration of the black family is due to black men not caring enough about their children or not being, not being willing to love in the same way that, you know, men of other races are willing to love and make commitments to their children or to their families. I strongly resist that. But it is true that there have been cultural adaptations that have not been helpful. And, you know, I, t I talk in the fourth chapter of the book about the fact that, you know, there are lots of young black men today who say, oh, I'm a gangster. Although, as though that is something to be proud of. Um, and, you know, who join gangs and who, you know, there's a fair amount of glorification of gangster culture. And, of course, the, you know, largest consumers of gangster rap are actually middle class whites who buy those albums in the largest numbers. It remains the case that there is a glorification among some segments of the African American community of, the, of gangster life and the gangster culture. But, that is an unhealthy adaptation. Um, you know, 
it's not as though these kids just woke up one day and said, what I'd really love to be in life is a gangster. No, these young kids grow up and at an early age find themselves tossed, frisked, thrown to the pavement by the police, told in countless ways, you're nothing but a criminal, you know, I need to know who you are, who your friends are. One day, you're going to wind up in jail with the rest of them. You're all no good. They're told that in countless ways, subtly and not so subtly, by teachers, by police on the street, by the community at large, through the media, that they're nobody. One way or another, they're going to jail. And they look around, and they see everybody going to jail. Now, psychologists have, for many, many years, Describe that when people who feel horribly stigmatized and feel they have no escape from a stigma, one coping strategy is to embrace the stigma and try to make it good. So my last two questions are all about, about Barack Obama. Um, do you think that the election of Barack Obama has set back the cause of racial justice in this country only because it makes the illusion of dramatic progress so much more compelling? Well, there have been some who have argued that the election of Obama could prove to be a net loss for the African-American community, um, given that Obama has not been inclined to, you know, uh, talk about race, focus on issues of poverty, um, and the black community in their zeal to protect him. Um, from political criticism has demobilized. Um, they're not, you know, organizing and demanding, you know, their fair share of the economic stimulus packages, et cetera, the way they might yeah. um, if you weren't the first black president. And so some have argued that... Some? Are you one of those some? Well, you know, I say it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm reserving judgment on that one. I wouldn't say today that it's a net loss. I, I think that there's risk that it could prove... He, he could prove to be a net loss for African Americans if uh, we remain silent. You're not at the point where you wish you voted for John McCain. <laughs> no, I'll never be at that point. <laughs> so, last question. So, you're invited to the White House for a talk with uh, President Obama. What, what do you most want to say to him? <laughs> well, you know, I think I would say to him, as someone who themselves... You, President Obama, who violated our nation's drug laws and who I would hope has a there but for the grace of God go I attitude towards all those cycling in and out of our prisons and jails today, you know, are you willing um, to not just change your rhetoric about the drug war, which he has, um, but are you willing to end it? And how difficult would that be politically, do you think? It would be difficult for him to, to do, but I don't think anywhere near as difficult as he might imagine. You know, most of the surveys that are done out there today su suggest very low support for the war on drugs. Uh, most people acknowledge that the war on drugs has failed. And, uh, you know, it's an area where we could save billions of dollars that could be redirected towards health care, towards education, to drug treatment, which he claims to care quite a bit about. Um, and although he's changed the rhetoric around the war on drugs, you know, his drug czar said, we shouldn't call it a drug war anymore. Um, the reality is, is that Obama's drug budget devotes the same ratio of dollars to drug treatment as enforcement as the Bush administration is. Some have even argued that his drug budget is worse than Reagan's. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's true, but it's certainly not much better. And so, uh, 
you know, I would say as someone who might well be cycling in and out of prison and jail, but for the grace of God, Mr. Obama, I hope that you'll, you'll stand up and, and do the right thing, even if it requires a little courage. Michelle, thanks so much. This is a, a real treat. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.